Happy Easter, everyone. So good to see you today. Uh, 15 years ago, roughly 15 years ago, I had an opportunity to take a trip with my seminary to Israel. And I was wavering. Should I go? It takes a lot of time, costs a lot of money, safety concerns, trivial things like that. I was just running through my mind. And I mentioned it to a retired minister that I knew. His name was Dr. Purnell Bailey. And his response was immediate and very strong. He said, you're going. And he said, the reason you're going is, is you will never read the Bible the same when you go. And he was exactly right. I spent a couple weeks in Israel on a study tour. And since that time, I've just have looked forward to the day that when maybe we as a church, Grace, we would take a study tour to Israel. And so next February, we are taking a trip to Israel, a 10-day study trip to Israel. And we have a table out in the lobby, a little information sheet. If you're interested, please stop by there. You'll never read the Bible the same. Okay, so we're reading both John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life, and the Easter story from John chapter 20. Devin is going to read to us this morning. Please, Steph. John 11... 17 to 27, New International Version. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would never have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. 1143 through 44, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. John 20, verses 3 through 8. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Thank you, Devin. Easter, Easter changed everything. Easter was the epic event of all history for the early church. Epic. 
It, it, it altered the way, listen, listen, it altered the way they saw the world. They changed. So it, it'd be like they were seen one day and then all of a sudden they put on glasses. Now, I, I like never wear my, I never, I make it a point because I wore my glasses one time when I preached, right? And uh, a little discouraging what you might see going on out in the audience, so I choose not to... <clears throat> She's not to see it. But anyway, for just because I want to, because my heart is for you and I want to illustrate a point, I put on these glasses. Now, whoa, I can actually see who is out there. It changes everything. That's what was Easter was like for them. It changed everything. They saw the world differently. I'm reading a book by Rodney Stark right now. He's a sociologist. He wrote about the rise of Christianity, the impact, the rise of it in the Roman Empire in the first 300 years. It is absolutely amazing. He brings out three things, just the life-altering change that it did for them. The first thing was this. You know, the Roman Empire suffered, many of the cities suffered terrible plagues numerous times. People would flee the cities. And you know what happened? You know what, you know what Christians would do? Christians that were either in the city or outside, instead of fleeing, they would stay. Instead of running from it, they would like go into the city and they would care for the people who were hurting. And, and people in the Roman Empire looked at this and said, well, this is crazy. Why are they doing this? Some of you might say, oh, yeah, you know what? I've heard that like early Christians were, didn't have education or they didn't have money. They weren't privileged. They couldn't leave the city. They were poor like everybody else. They couldn't. Do you, do you know that's not true? Do you know that's not true? I read a quote by Freud. Freud's like, oh yeah, Christians are uneducated, unprivileged. You know that's not true in the early days? Do you know that the Christian community was disproportionately the educated elite was the financially privileged? Did you know that? Do you know that that's how it spread? And those educated, privileged, financially wealthy people ran to the cities because they weren't afraid of death. That's Easter altered. Hey, look, <laughs> if an epidemic broke out in this city, you stay and you're going. Okay, Easter altered everything. Second thing that Stark says in his book that totally changed is that they realized from Easter that God loved everybody equally, that God was for everybody. That was, un, that was not understood until Easter took place. So you know what? The Christian church in the early days was the, check this out, everybody, was the first institution in the history of the world that was multicultural. And people looked at that. They looked at Christians running into the city instead of running out. Right? They looked at this multicultural institution. They said, what in the world is going on here? Final point. There were times when the Christian church went through uh, persecution. They were unjust, just a lot of injustice. I, things were taken from them, money was taken from them, sometimes homes were taken from them. There was times when they suffered terrible injustice. And the thing is, the, 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 the Christians, instead of lashing back, you know, you, you suffer an injustice, you know, treated wrong, you lash back. It's very normal. That's a human reaction. And instead of doing that, they, they didn't. They just didn't. They had this tremendous confidence that God, the judge of all people, would take care of it. Like, I don't have to judge you or yell at you or call you names because God's got that. He's going he's gonna to take care. He's going to take care of all that. So here's my question today. The most epic event in the world. Like, today's the day we all get dressed up and we come to church. I've seen some of you. You're not dressed normal today. You're dressed a little more, right? <laughs> going to church, man. Today's the day. But they woke up every day. They woke up every day as an epic event had taken place. 
Is it that way for you? Because I tell you what, it's not that way for me. Yesterday morning, I was going into the office really early in the morning. I was at the intersection of Idlewood Road and Route 7, right? And so I'm there at the intersection, and I'm stopped. I'm getting ready to take the right turn on red. Uh, and there was a lady. She was coming, I don't know, she was maybe in her 50s or something like that. And I didn't look closely enough. To t- I couldn't figure out what exactly was going on. Either she had a disability or she was injured or something, but she was walking. But, you know, her walk was, it was broken. She was kind of struggling to get across. It's a very wide intersection. And so she had made it almost to the halfway point. And so I had a decision to make, you know, should I, should I go? Should I take it? But I felt like if I did, I'd squeeze her just a little bit, you know, and maybe uh, make it uncomfortable. I didn't want to make it uncomfortable. So I said, stopped. Now what happened? Guy behind me. And I look at my rear man, the hands go up. Go idiot. What's wrong with you? Horn just going persecution, <laughs> right? Persecution, how would I respond? My world has been changed. My world's been changed, you know, that was yesterday, so today, tomorrow, the next day, it's Easter, my world's been changed, how would I react? I see the world differently, I have glasses on, what do I do? I didn't react well. Uh, so my world hasn't been changed enough, I might even have said a name that... I would not like to say. Anyway, that I, oh, you understand the point. Here, here's, here's what I want. Here's all I want to try to accomplish today. What is it that they understood? What is it that they understood? No, 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 no. You can't say, oh, is an emotional high. Oh, Jesus risen. Hey, 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 exciting. He's risen. That wasn't it. Emotions come and go. Emotions really lose their luster quite quickly, don't they? Right? Who remembers who won the Super Bowl? Who cares who won the Super Bowl, right? We don't care. Emotions come and go really quick. It wasn't emotional. There was something here. That's what I'm after this morning. I just want to give a little piece of an understanding that they had in their context. And if we can understand what they understood, maybe will it be life-altering? Now, I want to, I want to say this. Easter should be a day, everybody, that you come to church and you hear... Just a normal, wonderful, rousing Easter message. It should be that day. And it, I wish it was going to be that day. Um, but there might be parts of this message that, towards the end uh, that you don't like. Uh, here's what human beings have a tendency to do over a period of time. We make things safe. Clean things up. The problem when we, when we clean things up is they lose their meaning. Maybe that's, maybe that's why we don't understand what they understood. So I'm saying all that as, as my disclaimer. Uh, I'm going to pray in a minute. And if that, you know, if you need safe today, safe might not be what we're ab- about. And we're all going to have, well, we'll have our eyes closed or whatever. And if it's safer for you to slip out, you can do that. But I don't want to say that. It's, just, it's not going to be completely safe. Let's pray. Father... Big day, really big day. This day represents so much, represents so much, Lord. Help us to understand what they understood 2,000 years ago that altered their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Every year when it comes to Easter, I always pray the same thing. Oh, God, show me something in this Easter story that I have not 
scene before. I was listening to a preacher the other day, and he said, man, it's Easter. He said, you couldn't keep me from preaching. You'd, I mean, you'd have to drag me away with horses to keep me from preaching. I'm thinking, man, you and I are so far different. It's unbelievable. You know, it's been 28 Easter's for me that I have spoken. I think, okay, Lord, <laughs> what shall we say this year that somebody has not heard before? So I pray. I said, God, what in the story that I haven't seen? You know what God showed me? God showed me clothes. Everywhere I looked in the Easter story, I saw clothes. Everywhere I looked in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, I saw clothes. Think about it. We just read it. Devin just read it seconds ago. So Lazarus is raised from the dead. Boom, here he comes out of the tomb. What's the first thing the Bible tells us about him? He's bound. He's come shuffling out because he's bound by death clothes. Very symbolic in the Bible. He's bound by death. That's, I, I have a lot of other questions that I'd like to ask about that scene, but the only thing we're told is the old boy is bound by death clothes. Now let's fast forward. John chapter 20. Oh, my goodness. So we got Mary. She goes to the tomb. She tells John. She tells Peter. They go running off. John beats Peter to the tomb. He's the winner. I like that part. That just makes sense to me. It sounds awesome, much faster, much more athletic than Peter flies to the tomb. He gets there. He gets there first. He looks in. What does he see? Tell us. This is the epic event of humankind in the Bible. What do you see, John? You know what I see? I see clothes. That's fantastic. We can't wait till Peter gets here because he's far more spiritual. Peter, come on. Come on in here, Peter. He's out of breath. He's, we're going to let you catch your breath for a second. Now, get inside there. So he goes inside. What's Peter, go ahead. What do you see, man? I see clothes. I see clothes. That's what I see. Read it. Devin just read it for us. I see clothes. I see the burial clothes. Good. Tell us more. What else do you see? I appreciate that first reaction. Very deep, very biblical, very spiritual. What else do you see beside the clothes? Well, I see that the grave clothes are here and, and, and the, the, the cloth that went around Jesus' head, it's over here and it's been folded up nicely and it's separated. This is Wonderful. This is wonderful information. I just have a series of questions that I would like. This is off the top of my head. Okay. In these very few verses that you have about the most epic event of all time, could you tell us where the tomb was located? How about that one? Could you tell, could you tell us the size that it was big? Was it small? What was it like? Were the guards still there? Were they, were they out there? Is anyone milling around? The stone, like the stone. We told it was rolled away. What does, what does that mean, rolled away? Does that mean it was blown away? Is it like 100 feet away? Is it like thrown away? Or is it just barely? I, mean, I just have questions. Was there a struggle? Is there any sign of a struggle at the tomb? Footprints, like could you see that there's foot? Is G, you, any signs that Jesus is around? Don't, does anybody have any questions? Is anybody a detective? Nobody watches CSI? Don't you have questions? Don't you have questions about this situation? In John 20, the only thing he's telling us is clothes. The only thing. What is the deal with that? And that started to bother me a little bit. Why? The only thing he says is clothes. Clothes in the Bible are very symbolic. We're told in Romans chapter 13 that we should clothe ourselves with Christ. What does that look like? What does that mean? I'm going to clothe myself in Jesus Christ. Lazarus, right? When he was... Lazarus was not resurrected, everybody. Resurrection means that you are raised to never die again. I have news for you if you didn't know it. The old boy died again. He's dead. Dead as a doornail. He was resuscitated. 
inside of his grave, inside of his dead clothes, bound by his grave, bound by his grave clothes. Jesus Christ was resurrected, and there the clothes are no longer binding him. Massive difference. If you like to write things down in the, the blanks, put this one down. Death means you're a loser. Now, that's not nice, so let me give me a second, and I want to explain that. That's not nice at all. Death means that you are a loser. Okay. Uh, here's, what, here's the thing that we have to understand, right? Remember, we're, tr- we're talking about them. We're talking about what they understood 2,000 years ago because that's the critical factor here. What did they understand? What they understood by death is death meant far more than your heart stopped beating. Let that sink in for a second. Death in the Bible means far more than your heart has stopped beating. What does death represent? Well, death represents all the regrets that we have about life, everything that's wrong with life, all of our hurts, all of our pains, all the mistakes that we've made, all the mistakes that have been done against us, all the injustice that we have suffered, all the stupid or shameful things that we have done. They are all bottled up in one word, that in the Bible is called death. Now, now, now listen, listen. This isn't just your stuff that you've done. Okay? Because this is a very Western way to think. Well, it's just me and my stuff and the stuff I've done. I'm really not that bad. Other people are bad, but I'm not that bad. The Bible doesn't think that way, everybody. You've you got to get this one in you, too. Not only does death represent all the stuff that you've done, it represents everything that's ever been done. All that stuff that you read about in the papers, all the stuff that you see on CNN, all the atrocities and the genocide and the human trafficking and the child abuse and the wickedness and the things that just turn your stomach and make you really, really sick. It's all bottled up in one word, and that one word is death. It represents all of that and that we are bound to it. We are enslaved by all those regrets. So, so please write this one down. God hates death. Always, we hear stuff like this. Death is a beautiful thing. It's a natural thing. If I could sing, I would bust out right now with, it's the circle of life, and it would be absolutely awesome. It's beautiful, right? It's a natural thing. It's, oh, it's good. Don't say that to Jesus. Don't say, hey, Jesus, death is natural. It's beautiful. Don't say that to Jesus. He gets really angry. Really angry. John, John 11. You can read the rest of that chapter. We're told in verse 33 that Jesus Christ, knowing that he's getting ready to cause Lazarus' heart to start beating again, is deeply troubled. Remember I said a few minutes ago that sometimes we soften things a little bit? The word that is used there for deeply troubled, Jesus Christ, getting ready to cause Lazarus' heart to beat again, the word used for deeply troubled is the same word that was used of the Roman army when they would take their horses before a battle and they would line them up on the line, getting ready to charge into battle, it's going to be a fierce fight, and they would cause the horses to get extraordinarily angry. They would get them indignant. The word is snorting mad. That's the word, snorting mad. So mad that they had no fear, that they were ready to kill anything in their wake. That's the word used of Jesus Christ here. He is snorting, indignant, mad. He's angry. What's he so angry about? What's your problem? You're getting ready to raise the boy from the dead. You should be happy. He's angry. He's angry. He's angry at death. And then we're told, shortest verse in all the Bible. Every kid that's ever been to Sunday school or to a high school group somewhere loves this verse. It's the shortest verse in the entire. But what's your favorite verse? Oh, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept, because I can remember that. Jesus wept. Why are you weeping, Jesus? Why are you so angry? Why are you weeping? Why is he? 
He's getting ready to cause Lazarus's heart to beat again, and yet he's extraordinarily angry. Why? Death. And death represents far more than a beating heart. What it represents is all the junk in this life that binds us. All of your regrets, all of your hurts, all your failures, all of your shame, all the stuff that you wish you could go back and undo. That's what it represents. And Jesus looks at it, and it makes him very, very angry. Listen, listen. You take a parent, everybody. You take a parent, and you, 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 you mistreat a parent. They go through some kind of injustice. You do something wrong to them, whatever. They don't like it, right? Nobody likes to be persecuted. You do that. There's only one thing in life that that parent hates worse than them being mistreated. Tell me, parent, what is that? We can't hear you. Say it. Somebody has the answer. What's the only thing you hate worse? Your child. Your child. Oh, my gosh, yes. I hate it when somebody would mistreat me. But Lord have mercy if you do something to my kids. Hell has no fury. It's going to bust out. Every parent in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. People lose their mind. Women, nice, peaceful, happy, sweet women become raging lions. Don't get no, they'll kill you. Jesus Christ is very indignant. And why is he so indignant? Because he's looking at his child who's been mistreated, and that represents all of his children who have ever been mistreated, who have ever suffered injustice and wrong, and he is extremely, extremely angry. Easter is all about clothes. It's all about clothes. Don't raise your hand. Some of you, uh, it's Easter Sunday, you bought a new outfit today, right? You bought a new outfit or you bought a new outfit for somebody or a new outfit for your child or at some point in your life you bought a new outfit because it's Easter, man, and you have got to look good. It's a special day, right? It's about the clothing. You want to look good. I, I just wrote down some quick sayings that I remember just right off the top of my head about clothing. Like, you are what you wear, right? You heard that one before? Dress for success. Dress to, uh -huh. dress to kill. How about dress to the nines? That's very good. Look good, feel good. Uh, how about that one? Clothes make the man. Did I forget any other? Any other really good ones out there, right? So all these things. Did you know, and DJ, could you, could you roll that track that we have? Could you just start rolling? Track? So the number one song... The number one song in America right now on Billboard, the number one song is, you know what it's all about during Holy Week? Isn't it interesting? It's right on Holy Week. It's all about clothes. Now, some of you have no idea what this song is. Good. For those of you who know what the song is, you know what the song is? It's the sanitized version. Don't get nervous. For those of you who don't know what the song is, you don't know what the song is, don't Google it. Okay? Ignorance is bliss. Just go with it. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. It's all about clothes. It's all about thrift shopping. That you can go to Neiman Marcus and buy something for 500 bucks, or you can go to the thrift shop and pop a 20 is what it talks about, right? And you can look just as good. It's all about clothes. All right, let's kill the music. People starting to dance. Okay. All right, so, so why Jesus? We're in this series here. We're in this series, right? This is the fifth week of this series about why Jesus. We're looking at the seven bold I am statements of Jesus Christ that he makes. He makes these seven clear, crystal clear, bold statements that are all about us. 
What is he saying here when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? What Jesus Christ, who is clothed, according to Scripture, in righteousness and in perfection, what he's saying in this statement is, is I will give you my clothes. I will trade clothes with you. I, I have somebody who's going to help me here real quick. John Rich is going to be actually Jesus today uh, for us. Thank you, John, for doing that. He's going to put on that clothing right there. You know, what's interesting is you read through the Bible, everybody. Genesis chapter 3, you might recall this. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve and the sin of humanity, right? So they sin, and then the consequences are given out. Remember that? So the consequences are given out? Consequences to the world, the consequences to Adam, the consequences to Eve. What Bible scholars in this room know, the very first action that God did, the very first action of God after the consequences, after that was out, after God read the consequences, what's the first action that God did? What did he do? He made them close. He made them close. What does that mean? When you clothe somebody... In the Bible, symbolically, what it is saying is, is, I'm not abandoning you. I still love you, and I'm going to clothe you. That's the meaning in the Bible. I still love you. I'm going to clothe you. John chapter 19, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus is crucified, taking him to the cross, what do we have a few verses on? What we spend precious few moments talking about? We talk about the clothes of Jesus Christ. Talk about them gambling for the clothes, and then it goes into great detail about how Jesus' clothing was one seamless piece. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate you telling me about his clothing. Very important. So we're told the clothing was taken away from him. We're told that Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Why is that important? You know why that's important? That psalm is all about God forsaking and abandoning. happening at the cross is we are told right God clothes Adam and Eve and God has the clothes of Jesus Christ taken away God is loving and accepting to the children who did wrong and to his own son who is perfect and has done no wrong he abandons he, he abandons he rejects he walks away and the story Maybe you recall this. In the story, I've never seen it this way before. It just hit me this week. We're told about the darkness that falls. Remember that? From noon till 3 o'clock, darkness falls. This, that, that was not a natural event. It's not the time of year for some kind of sandstorm. It couldn't have been like some kind of solar eclipse. Nothing like that. No, 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 no. This had to be supernatural darkness for three hours. Now, where does else do you read about darkness in the Bible? When God sent all those plagues of judgment upon Egypt, one of the judgments was darkness, deep darkness. And I've always seen it, that God is looking at this terrible, tragic event of the murder of his son, and darkness falls on the land, and God is just saying, how dare you do this wicked thing to my son? Darkness and judgment fall, but that's not it. The father is not judging the Romans. 
or the religious leaders or the crowd of people. He's not judging all of them. His judgment is focused on one person, Jesus Christ. The deep darkness of judgment is focused on Jesus as he is rejected and cast out by his father because he becomes sin. Now, Zechariah, which is why we're in these robes, Jesus here in his nice clean robe and me in my nice clean robe, Zechariah chapter 3, we are told this. It's a vision. It's a vision of the high priest. You know what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement? Yesterday would have been the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay? If the temple existed, they would have done this. Okay? But 2,000 years ago, this is what they did. The priest who was the best of the best. He's the best of the best. So today we'd say, well, well, who's the best of us? Who's the most holiest person that we know? Well, maybe it's the Pope or it's Billy Graham or maybe it, you know, years ago probably would have been Mother Teresa, right? The best of the best. We take, and that's the person who's the high priest of the best of the best, and we put them in isolation just before Yom Kippur so nothing, they could do nothing wrong. They could do no sin. They couldn't be tainted in any way whatsoever. And then on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, they go, and in front of all the people, they put up a screen so you could just kind of see a silhouette what was going on. They bathe themselves. They scrub, they got themselves totally clean. They put on a brand new, fresh, white robe like this, beautiful and clean. And they went in to the Holy of Holies and they made atonement for the sins of all people, their sins, everybody's sins, everything. And they came back out and they bathed again and they put on a, a second white robe and they went in and they did, they did it three times. They did it three times. And then we're told in Zechariah chapter 3 that the high priest in his beautiful white robes was looked at and said, I saw the high priest and their robes were covered in filth. And here's where we try to clean things up. And I just need you to know the original language in the Hebrews, Hebrew, it doesn't say filth. I'm going to clean it up for you too. Okay? I'm just going to call it sewage. But I need you to know something, everybody. I need you to know in the original language, that's not what it says. I saw the best of the best, and he was covered in sewage. Think about it. Everything that I have ever done wrong, every wicked thought, every wicked deed, covering the best of the best. Just filth. Every lie, every act of selfishness, every act of injustice, every evil, racist thing that has ever been done on the entire planet, right? Everything, absolutely everything. Sewage covers the high priest. And the high priest represents you and me, covered. He looks, oh my gosh. That means we're all covered in sewage. Now here's where it gets uncomfortable. This is what we're told, Jesus says to us. I'm the resurrection of life. He's saying, he will take his robe of righteousness and perfection and he'll 
clothe us in, Isaiah 61, salvation and in righteousness. That's what he'll do for us. He'll clothe us that way. 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection, says he will clothe us. He'll take away all this sewage, all the shame, all the things that we wish we never did, all the things that we wish had never been done to us. He will take all of that. He'll take it off of us, and he'll give us glory, and he'll give us honor. Takes it all. So this is the way I always saw it. I got to take this off. This is a great thing. told me that I should try to figure out a way to oh, okay, to try to clean my hands, so I'm never going to be able to get my hands totally clean, I don't think. Thank you, my good man. And I get to put on this brand new robe, and it's fresh, and it's clean. Now, let me tell you a misunderstanding I've had for years, everybody. I just thought, Jesus... I just thought he took that robe and he just did whatever he does with it, you know. He, he does his magical stuff with it. He, he vaporizes it. He throws it in the trash. He gets rid of it. Or, you know, it's just gone. I don't know where it goes, but it's just gone. It's not true. It's not true. What Jesus does is he takes that robe, our lives, submerged in sewage, and he puts it on. He puts it on. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, becomes sin. Years ago, I was playing basketball in the gym right down here in TJ when I was a kid. And I dislocated this finger very, very badly. It was like doing a Z. It's terrible. It was really weird to look at. And I remember going to the trainer. I was just a naive, stupid kid, very immature in my thinking. And I just said to the trainer, I said, will this just go away? And he looked at me and said, no, don't be stupid. It doesn't just go away. You have to do something with it. My thought is, is that all my sewage that I was submerged in, that the whole world is submerged in, all that crap that you hear about in this life, I just thought it went away. I didn't realize that Jesus Christ put it on. And now it made sense. The rejection, the abandonment, the judgment, now it made sense. Now it made sense why the early church lives were completely altered, why they were profoundly humbled, is they knew that it just didn't go away. It didn't evaporate in thin air. Jesus Christ took it on. That's why the Bible says, God, the Father speaking, I will strike Zechariah chapter 13. I will strike Jesus. The word strike means to attack and kill. The Father attacks and kills Jesus Christ because Jesus is submerged in sewage. The way that sin is described in the Bible, submerged in it. I never understood that before. Every vile thing, those things that you hear about and you read about that just cause you to erupt and you say, I can't believe that would happen. This was a sick world. Make you angry, you want to do something about it. Jesus Christ becomes the perpetrator of every single one of those events. Look, look, listen, listen. 
It's ridiculous to think that Jesus is there and he's in all that sewage and he's like, I'm in this sewage, but you know, Jesus, God is not Godfather. It's not really me. I'm just taking it on. <laughs> it's all good. That's, that's ridiculous. That's childish. That's naive thinking. The father looked at him and he attacks and kills his son because he became the perpetrator of every bit of disgusting vileness that exists in this world. He did that for us. That, that's the Easter message. Now, I want to say something that's going to be upsetting. Back in the late 80s, an uh, artist who does his artwork by taking pictures took a picture of something. He took a crucifix and Jesus was on that cross, Jesus. And he took that and he dropped it into a vial of his own sewage and went on display in galleries around the world. It's traveled around the world and it's been, I mean, it's caused a firestorm. Political, religious, social. Why isn't the president speaking out about this? How could he have won $15,000 from the NEA for doing this? Just, it's, in, it's on display right now in September. It went on display in New York City. Just, it is so repulsive. It is so disgusting. It is so vile. It is so wrong. It is so terrible. It's all of those things. It's also something else. True. True. People say, if you did this to any other religious leader in the world, World War III would break out. Some Christians have risen up, but man, why aren't more Christians rising up and ripping that thing down and demanding? You know a portion of the reason why? Because of the thing that the early church understood about Jesus Christ. And what they understood was this, that Jesus Christ was submerged in our sewage now that's repulsive and hard to even think about, but that's how their lives were completely altered. They understood what Jesus Christ had done for the world. Humbling and transformative. Thanks, John. And one last thing I want to say. Jesus Christ says, everybody that I am the resurrection and the life, what Jesus Christ is saying, he's, he's, not, he's not saying, I'm going to make your heart beat again. Come on. Do we really think that's all there is to it? I'm going to make your heart beat again. Some of us don't. I mean, we're like tired of this life. This life hurts. This life hurts. This life, st this life is filled with sewage. I'm not really sure I want my heart to keep beating forever. I don't know how excited I'm going to get. Do you, think, do you think that's what they... I mean, they lived a life much tougher than we did. Life was brutal back then. We got it really easy, particularly living here in the United States of America. We're just like, it's just so easy. It's unbelievable. They had it tough. I'll make your heart beat forever. Woo! Thank you. That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant at all. What he was saying when he said, I am the resurrection of life, he is saying, I am going to restore all things. Restoration is all over the place in the Old Testament. You read it. You read that word all just constantly. Restore, restore, restore. But you know what? When you get to the New Testament, 
the word is not used until the disciples use it after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know why? Very important. Because it means I, when Jesus says, I am going to restore all things, this is what he's saying. He's saying this, I am going to undo all that stuff that you have ever done or has ever been done to you. I'm going to undo it. Have you ever thought that in your life? Have you said, oh my gosh, I just wish, just in your daydreaming, just, just think, I wish I could go back and undo that thing I did. I wish I could go back and undo that thing I said. I wish I could go back and undo that thing I saw. I wish I could go back and have undone to me all the sewage that was poured on me that has scarred my life so deeply. Oh, God, if there was some way to have it all undone, I would love to undo it. I saw this uh, TV, like a news show, it was like 15, 20 years ago. I tell you, I, it's so, the, the end of the show so shook me that I have not been able to forget it unto this day. It was Diane Sawyer doing this program, and she was talking, it was like a whole hour-long thing about teenage girls and um, their parents who were like encouraging them to be sexually active. And the whole thing was like really uplifting, though, this is awesome, this is good, and these parents are great, and they know it's a natural thing, and it's a beautiful thing, and other people are doing it, we should not make them feel guilty, but we should encourage it, go ahead, do it, and the parents are taking them to the doctor and getting them all the education they need to have, and everything, it's beautiful, it's just beautiful. And the whole thing was beautiful. And it got to the end, and Diane Sawyer said something as she ends the whole thing, which was so strange. It's like she was shocked. It's like she couldn't figure this out. It was weird. Like the last 30 seconds of the thing, she said, she said, there was something that happened at the end of every one of our interviews with these 15 or 20 teenage girls, and I don't understand it. This is what Diane Sawyer said. I don't understand it. Every single one of the girls were like, glad you, thank you, mom and dad, for all this stuff. But then they said, ready? I wish I'd never had. Every girl to the T, every one of them on their own, separate, every one of them said, I wish I'd never had. You know what I hear when I hear that? That innocence. Oh, yeah, it's a great thing. Go... It's been taken. It's been scarred. I wish I never had. I wish I could go back and get back what I had, but I don't have it. I don't have it. And how many of us have done something of our own choosing or because somebody said, oh, yeah, do it, man. It's awesome. And we look at, oh, my gosh, I wish I never had done that. I wish I could forget it. I wish that I had never experienced the crap that has come down on me, that has forever altered my life, I wish I never had. Jesus Christ, think about this. And when he says, I am the resurrection, he is saying this. This is amazing. He's not saying, I'm going to make your heart beat again. Woo, get excited. Your heart's going to beat again. No, that's, that's nothing. I'm going to undo everything for you. I'm going to undo every single thing that you say, I wish I never had. I'm going to undo everything. I'm going to turn it all back around. I'm going to restore to brand new. You will never again have to say, I wish I never had. I'm going to make it so. I'm going to make it so. And that's what excited the early church. They realized with all their hurts and pains and suffering and injustice, they weren't looking forward to the day their heart beat again. They were looking forward to the day when everything got undone. I don't know about you, but that's pretty awesome to me. And I am profoundly humbled that Jesus Christ 
would take on all of my sewage. And then he would undo all of my past. Now what is resurrection? Why is it so important? Why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is worth nothing? Here's why. God knew that this was so important. He said, I've got to give them a physical, tangible reminder that this is true. This is true. Resurrection is your guarantee that it's all going to get undone. Resurrection is your physical, tangible guarantee that he took on your robe submerged in sewage. And he's going to undo everything for all of eternity for you. I went last night to buy these robes and I walked out. You know what they gave me before I walked out? They gave me this receipt right here. So when the security guard standing at the door said, wait a minute. Did you buy those things? I said, right here, baby. It's been paid for. That's resurrection. It's your guarantee, your physical, tangible guarantee that it's all going to be undone. Guys, that's incredible. Can you imagine being loved that much? I can't comprehend it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Your love never fails. It never fails to come after me, but it also never fails to astound me. There's always something new that we can learn about the depth and the power of your love. And it is truly and profoundly humbling. Please continue all day long to help us to understand the truth of what Easter means so that our lives would be forever altered for your honor and your glory. Just as everybody's here praying, I just want to remind you before I say amen and we sing this song. What a day to get rid of your robe of sewage. And to say, Jesus, take my sins away. Clothe me in your righteousness. I am so profoundly humbled and thankful that you would do this for me. Come into my heart and save my soul. I will encourage you if you've never done that before. Why not do it today? We have a prayer team that's just over here to the right of the auditorium to pray for you along the wall. Father, bless us and help us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.